you would turn with me in a Bible to Exodus chapter 16. This morning we're looking at the whole chapter. As we've said during the book of Exodus, we're seeing how God brought the Israelites from bondage to belonging, from bondage and slavery in Egypt to belonging to him as their Lord and God and Savior. And that's a picture of what Jesus Christ came to do. So as we're looking uh, at the stories in this book, uh, we're getting a glimpse of what Christ would come to do for, for us. Uh, let's join together. Uh, let me read chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Uh, they, that's the people of Israel, set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law. Or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, that is about a half gallon, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Then Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. 
So they lay it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, Moses said this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread which, with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. In the year 1639, just three years after the British colony of Connecticut was founded, its first official seal was designed. Now the seal of Connecticut was used to authenticate official documents, but it also represented the people's origins and ideals. And the seal depicted several grapevines along with the Latin motto, qui transtulit sustenet. Translated into English, it means he who transplanted still sustains. One historian explained the meaning of the seal as follows. The vines symbolize the colony brought over and planted here in the wilderness. And the motto expresses our belief that he who brought over the vine continues to take care of it. Now, it's nearly 400 years later, but you can look at the Connecticut State Seal, the Connecticut State Flag, and the Connecticut Coat of Arms, and they all have that same image of three grapevines representing the three colonies, New Haven Colony, uh, Sabert Colony, sort of southeastern Connecticut, and Connecticut Colony, which was based in Hartford, that merged together to become what is now our state. Uh, and the motto is still the same, qui transtulit sustenet, he who transplanted still sustains. Uh, that could have been the motto of the ancient Israelites. In some ways that expresses what God was trying to teach them through this season of the book of Exodus in their journey through the wilderness. I've saved you and I'm going to take care of you. Uh, I'm going to sustain you. Uh, so as we've seen the people have left Egypt behind but now they're traveling through an uncharted wilderness in chapter 16 through 18 and, and, and God is teaching them that lesson, and it's not a lesson that's easy for them to learn. We saw last week how they uh, qu questioned, uh, quarreled with the Lord and with Moses, uh, and, and accused Moses of, 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 and accused God of abandoning them, and accused Moses of wanting to kill them uh, when they were thirsty and needed water, but how God provided for them nonetheless. And today we're looking at how God provided food for their hunger. Uh, so, uh, this wasn't a lesson that they automatically learned that the Lord who saved them would sustain them, but it's a lesson that God was seeking to teach them throughout uh, this section, and it's a lesson that God wants to teach us as well. 
So I want to look at this chapter under two headings. Number one, the people's grumbling in verses 1 through 12. And number two, the Lord's provision in verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Uh, so first, uh, let's look at the people's grumbling. The word grumble appears eight times in the first 12 verses of this chapter. So it's sort of the main theme of these first 12 verses. And I want us to notice three things about the people's grumbling. First, notice how quickly the people began grumbling. Verse 1. Uh, gives us a date, says it was the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Now they departed from the land of Egypt on the 14th day of the first month, so it's one month later, the 15th day of the second month, uh, just one month. And during that one month, God had set them free from slavery. He had spared them from judgment. He had accompanied them with the pillar of fire and cloud. Uh, he had parted the waters of the Red Sea and led them through. He had turn the bitter water into sweet at Mara and refresh them at Elam. And despite all of those things, the people grumbled. In other words, they whined and complained. Now they weren't just lamenting, <coughs> excuse me, legitimately difficult circumstances. It's not wrong. Now, you can find many examples in the Bible, in the Psalms, where people are lamenting, that is crying out to God in the midst of pain and distress. That's not wrong. In fact, that's what God invites us to do and wants us to do when we're in pain and in distress. Uh, but these people were not doing, they were not lamenting, they were grumbling. In other words, they were murmuring. They were becoming bitter and hopeless and cynical. And they quickly concluded that it was all for nothing. We wish we had died already when we were back in Egypt. I mean, the Israelites were like toddlers throwing a temper tantrum after spending a whole day at the beach because mom and dad finally say it's time to go home. Or, no, I'm not going to buy you a second ice cream cone because I just bought you one an hour ago. Right, the Israelites immediately forgot all the blessings they had experienced from God, all the ways that God had shown that he cared about them, and the only thing that seemed to matter was whatever I want right now and I don't have it. In Deuteronomy, actually, Moses described this period of the wilderness as uh, the time when the people of Israel were like an infant or a toddler. Uh, in the wilderness, he said, Deuteronomy 131, the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. Right? God was carrying the Israelites like, uh, like a parent carries a young child who can't walk the whole way by themselves. Um, and God patiently bore with his little children's tendency to grumble quickly. Uh, but second, notice who they grumbled against in verse 2. Uh, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And if you notice down in verse 7 through 7 and 8, Moses confronted them about this. He says, the Lord has heard your grumbling against the Lord. What are we that you grumble against us? And in verse 8, he says the same thing. He repeats himself. So twice Moses said to them, you're grumbling against me and Aaron, but your real issue is with the Lord. The real issue is that you're unhappy with God, you don't trust his leadership and his provision in your lives, and that's why you're expressing all these negative feelings toward us. You know, often, people who are unhappy with God and not satisfied with his provision or with the decisions he's made to order the world and order their lives in a certain way end up expressing those negative feelings toward a spiritual leader, or toward a spouse, or toward some other authority figure in life. 
right? Have you, have you ever been, in, I mean, perhaps you've been on the receiving end of this. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody got mad at you for no apparent reason? It just came out of nowhere. And what they told you that you had done was such a minor thing compared to how mad they were about it, right? You ever been there? Um, and maybe you realized, maybe this isn't all about me. Maybe this person is anxious or angry or hurt or overwhelmed by some other situation in their life, and maybe I don't even know what that situation is, but they're taking out these feelings on me for whatever reason. Uh, psychologists call this displacement, uh, a defense mechanism that involves an individual transferring negative feelings from one person or thing to another. Right? Here the people were taking their negative feelings toward God and spewing them on Moses and Aaron. Now here's the challenge for us. The next time that you become frustrated with another person, and we all get frustrated, don't anybody tell me that you never get frustrated. Uh, or the next time that you are tempted to go and grumble to someone else, or grumble about someone else. So grumbling about somebody else, that's called gossiping. It's a sin in the Bible. Ask yourself this. Is my frustration purely and simply because of something that this other person said or did that was wrong and hurtful? And I want to address it directly so that it can be corrected and relationships can be mended. That is a good kind of frustration and indignation, right? We sometimes should see things that people are doing that are wrong and hurtful and address them directly, lovingly but firmly, so that things can be corrected and relationships can be mended. But sometimes that's not the only reason we're frustrated, right? Sometimes we're frustrated because all kinds of things in life are out of my control and I don't like that. And so, I get easily frustrated by something else that somebody does. The challenge is, do I tend to grumble and gossip because deep down I'm unhappy and not satisfied with the Lord and how he's chosen to run the world and how he's chosen to oversee my life? So Moses and Aaron were challenging the people, get to the root of your grumbling. And they were challenging the people in this case your real issue is not just with us. You need to deal with the root of your grumbling, which is you're unhappy and you're dissatisfied and you're distrustful of God himself. Even though he's repeatedly shown you how much he cares for you and loves you. Third, notice how their grumbling distorted their perspective. Right? How quickly they grumbled, who they grumbled against, and how their grumbling distorted their perspective. Verse 3. You hear what they said? You hear how they described their past in Egypt. The happy golden years where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Really? When you were being told to make bricks without straw and work from morning till night and never get a day off and all that you remember is the occasional time where you got to eat a full and satisfying meal. Their grumbling also distorted their perspective on the present. You've brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. They described the wilderness as the place of death, as a dead end, even though it's the place where they've 
become closer to God and they've experienced his presence more than ever before. Now it's not even clear whether these people had run out of food yet. Last week, when we looked at how, it says they had no water. They had legitimately run out of water and there were no sources of water that they could find in the wilderness. They were legitimately thirsty last week. But here, it does not say that they ran out of food. It just says they had a craving. They wanted what they wanted, and they started grumbling. Psalm 78, describing this situation, says, They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. You see, there's a difference between a legitimate desire and a sinful craving. Right? As human beings, we have legitimate desires for food. Right? If you're hungry, if you haven't ate for a whole day, you're, you're feeling a legitimate hunger for food or a legitimate thirst for water. Or if you've been up all night, you've been up for 24 hours straight, you're feeling a legitimate need for sleep. Right? And we can thank God that he provides many ways for our legitimate desires to be satisfied in moderation. But we don't only have legitimate desires as human beings, we also have sinful cravings. Now what's a craving? A craving is a bottomless desire that is never satisfied. A craving is a bottomless pit like hell itself. No matter how much you have, it never fills you up. You're always wanting more. Some people have a craving for money. You ask, how much money would be enough for you? And the answer is always, just a little more than I have now. Some people have a craving for power. They always have to be in charge wherever they go. And they're never content to just follow somebody else's lead. Some people have a craving for drugs or alcohol or sex. And it takes over their life and ruins everything. If you have a craving, no matter what it's for, the Bible says that either you must kill it or it will eventually kill you. And you cannot kill a craving by willpower alone. The only way to kill a craving is to find a greater source of satisfaction that fills that hole. And the only source of satisfaction that will fill our deepest longings is God himself. Yes. It's not something else in this world. It's not food instead of alcohol. It's not power instead of sex. It's not substituting one thing for another. But it's finding the fulfillment of our deepest desires in God himself. A long time ago, there was a man named Augustine and he, he prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And he prayed that prayer because he had finally learned that. Because for a long time, he wrote an autobiography called The Confessions of St. Augustine. You can read it. Um, but he tells in his autobiography how he craved fame and power and success talks about how he craved sex and romance. 
and nothing satisfied him. No matter how successful he was, and he became a very successful scholar, and he was, had a lot of people who looked up to him. He was a professor, and he got a lot of the things that he wanted, but none of them satisfied him deep down until Jesus Christ found him, and he was able to say, Lord, you've made me, you've made all of us for yourself. And my heart was restless until it found its peace in you. And Jesus Christ can give peace to our souls and set us free from our cravings. So that's the first thing we see is the people's grumbling. But the second thing we see is the Lord's provision, beginning in verse 13. God didn't give them what they deserved for their grumbling. He didn't leave them to fend for themselves. He didn't say, okay, I'll give you half-rotten, poor, barely sufficient rations. No, he gave them gracious and good and sufficient provision. So verse 13, they got quail in the evening. Quail was considered a delicacy in ancient Egypt. Every spring, the quail would migrate north to the Sinai Peninsula. Sometimes they actually flop on the ground in large numbers because they're tired uh, from flying against the wind. Uh, perhaps the Lord providentially arranged the timing for a, to provide a filling meal for the Israelites that very evening, but the quail isn't the main focus of the story. Uh, that only was provided occasionally. The main provision was the miraculous manna, bread from heaven. And this bread wasn't low quality. Verse 14 describes it as a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Verse 31 says it tasted like wafers made with honey. Now, I've never made wafers, but I've heard that they are not easy to prepare. And honey back then was a delicacy because you had to go out into the, into the woods to find honey. Nobody did beekeeping back then. Um, you couldn't just go to the store and buy a nice thing of honey, right? Something that tastes like wafers made with honey? Delicious. You know, that's pretty good. Uh, so it was... Tasty, nutritious, sufficient, and sustaining. Uh, let me highlight three aspects of the sufficiency of God's provision that we see in uh, the second half of this passage. Uh, first, there is enough for everyone, verse 16 through 18. Uh, now, two things are clear from verses 16 through 18. Number one is some people gathered more than others. Uh, verse, where is that? Uh, verse 17, they gathered some more, some less. But the second thing was, everyone had enough. Verse 18, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. So no one went home hungry at the end of the day. Now, what's not clear is how exactly did this happen? Some people gathered more than others, but everybody got enough in the end. Uh, did God sort of miraculously ensure that no matter how hard you worked, you ended up with exactly the same amount, a half gallon, an omer, no more, no less? Or did the people have a hand in sharing the manna with each other? Uh, perhaps within an extended family uh, or clan, the very young children, uh, the elderly might eat a little less, and able-bodied adults might eat a little bit more, but on average it always turned out that there was enough for everybody. I think there's an indication uh, that it's the latter uh, because the Apostle Paul quotes verse 18, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. He quotes that in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 13 through 15, 
Uh, and in that passage, the Apostle Paul is urging Christians who have more than they need to share with others who have uh, legitimate uh, and significant needs, uh, physical, practical, financial needs. And he uses the manna as an example of how God's people should share with one another so that everyone will have enough. Uh, he says, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness or equality. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. Right? Paul is saying, just like with the manna, some people gathered more than others, but in the end everybody got enough. That's how God's provision is supposed to work in the church. Right? If God has blessed you with an abundance of resources, whether it's extra food or whether it's uh, a house that you can host people or whether it's uh, spiritual knowledge of the Bible that you can share with others or whether it's time that you can listen patiently to someone who needs a listening ear, God invites you to share that resource with someone else who might benefit. Right? Share what you have, whether it's money or time or knowledge or prayer, whatever it might be. Share that with your brothers and sisters in Christ who might lack that or who might benefit from it. And if you find yourself needing something, gather what you can, but don't be ashamed to ask your brothers and sisters in Christ for help. We all need to give and receive, right? One person put it this way, nobody is so poor that he has nothing to give, and nobody is so rich that he has nothing to receive. That should be true in the body of Christ because of what we've all received from God and what we've all received from Jesus Christ. Uh, so as a church, uh, this is one reason why developing partnerships with missionaries and with ministries locally and throughout the world is an important part of what we do because we want to share the resources God has given us to encourage and enable others to continue their work, even as we benefit from their reports and testimonies and uh, their insight into scripture. So we wanna share what we have so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be proclaimed and lived out more widely and we can rejoice in God's provision together. So that's the first thing we see how God provides. There was enough for everyone. Second, we see there was enough for every day. Uh, look back at verse 4. God had said this, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So what we see here is God didn't explain his whole plan in advance and lay out all his reasons for how he was going to organize things and then say, what do you all think? Should I revise my plan a little bit or should I go with this plan? No, that's not how God makes plans. He doesn't make tentative plans and then ask for our input and then maybe change them uh, because we have a bright idea. No. God was teaching his people to trust him even when they didn't understand him, right? Every parent of a young child must teach your, our children, trust me even when you can't understand me. Because as a parent, you can't always explain everything to your children in a way that they can completely, fully, and in a satisfying way understand, especially, think about an infant or a toddler, right? That's sort of the season of life that God was leading, you know, caring for the Israelites through, right? As a parent, we want to say, 
trust that I'm wiser than you and that I love you and that I have your best interest at heart. And how much more so with God, right? As parents, we try to do that imperfectly. And we all fall short in one way or another. None of us are perfect. But God is our great provider. He doesn't always give us what we want or what we expect, but he always gives us what we need. And that's one of the lessons that the Lord was trying to teach his people over and over for 40 long years while they ate the manna day after day. Uh, verse 35 says they ate the manna for 40 years until they came to the land of Canaan. And at the end of their journey across the wilderness, uh, Moses uh, said to the people in Deuteronomy 8, he said, remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, in other words, every day the manna was a test. Would the people trust God to provide, or were they not? Every morning, they had to get out of bed and gather the manna. Right? If they just laid in bed till the afternoon, they'd miss out. And every night, they had to trust that God was going to provide for them the next morning. Verse, verse 20 says, some of them tried to keep some till the next morning because they wouldn't trust that God would provide the next morning, and it was full of worms and it stank. So the manna was a daily test, but it was also a daily sign of God's trustworthiness. There was always enough for every day. Now, what do we take from this emphasis on how God provided for the Israelites day by day. Uh, now, some Christians have tried to uh, take this very literally. So some Christians have said, I won't save any money. Uh, I won't plan for tomorrow. I won't make any plans except for the next 24 hours uh, because God provided the manna day by day, so that's how I'm going to live. Now, that's not right, and the reason why that's not right is because we are not literally the Israelites in the wilderness. Notice, God provided the manna day by day for 40 years until they came to the land of Canaan, and in the land of Canaan, they would own property, they could cultivate the land, they could store up the abundance of their crops year by year, and the book of Proverbs says, he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. So the book of Proverbs and other places in the Bible encourages us to be wise and save what we can and not just spend everything that we have every day and try to justify that by appealing to this story, right? Now, on the other hand, there's also another cliff we can fall over on the other side, right? The Bible does warn against hoarding, right? The people of Israel tried to keep too much for themselves, and it stank and rotted. And Jesus warns, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what does it look like to store up your treasures in heaven? It looks like giving away some of your earthly treasures. Giving your money away to care for the poor, 
to support missionaries, to invest in people's spiritual growth, to bless somebody else, right? You cannot store up treasures in heaven if you just try to keep everything for yourself. And it applies to us individually and applies to us as a church as well. We should seek to store up treasures in heaven by using what God has given us to support people's spiritual growth and health and the work of God around the world. Uh, so the lesson of the manna, it's not that we should never save. That's not right. It's not, not that we, and, and it's also not that we should hoard everything we have. The lesson is every day we should depend on God and be thankful to God. You notice Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us each day our daily bread. Right? Every day we should start the day with prayer because the Lord knows our needs. He knows what we're going to face today and tomorrow and the next day. And every day we need to start the day by saying, Lord, give me what I need to serve you and to love others today. And we can end our day by giving him thanks because, once again, God has sustained us. So there's enough for everyone. There's enough for every day. Finally, there's enough for every Sabbath. Uh, God gave his people one day a week where they could rest and receive and rejoice. Um, now, we'll talk more about the Sabbath when we get to the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're going to take one week for each of the Ten Commandments this fall. Uh, so we'll get there in a couple, maybe two or three more weeks. And we'll sort of go slowly through those because they're such a foundational part of uh, what it means to live as God's people. Uh, they're very practical. Um, and Jesus talks about each one of them in one way or another. Um, so we'll deal with the Sabbath command a little more when we get there. Uh, but just remembering that when the people were slaves in Egypt, they never had a weekly day of rest. That was never guaranteed for them. And God said to them, I want you to know that when you're following me, that I love you. And I want you to not just work hard for me all the time, but I want you to know the work that I've done for you. I want you to rest in me. Um, and at the end of the story, uh, Moses uh, tells the Israelites we need to keep a little bit of manna throughout the generations as a reminder of how God has provided for us. Um, it was kept in uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place in the tabernacle. Now, we don't have that manna anymore, but we have something better that speaks to us of God's provision. Right? Or from the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So today we're going to share the Lord's Supper or communion, which we share every first Sunday of the month here. And every time when we do this, we're remembering how God provided for us, ultimately through sending his son Jesus to die for us on the cross. Um, but and we are expressing our trust that he who transplants still sustains. He who has saved us is continuing to feed us and care for us and be our good shepherd and walk with us through the wilderness of this life until we get to the promised land of glory to come. So the bread and cup that we're about to receive, when we receive the bread and drink uh, the grape juice in the cup, those aren't Jesus himself, but they are an enduring testimony to God's faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for how you provided for the Israelites, for how you taught them that you 
who had saved them would continue to sustain them, that you were and you are a faithful God. We pray that you would help us. We pray that you'd forgive us where we tend to grumble like the Israelites. We pray that you would fix our eyes on how you have provided for us sufficiently and graciously. In your holy name we pray. Amen.